Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, one man ran up to him and knelt in front of him. He asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except one, God. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, Teacher, I have kept all these since I was a child. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack. Go sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he looked sad and went away grieving because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus told them again, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in their riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to one another, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For people it is impossible, but not for God, because all things are possible for God. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who beckons us, pleads with us, invites us to follow him. It seemed like this man that we are introduced to in this text had it all. The trifecta of what the world considers is required, is necessitated for having happiness in this life. Mark tells us he's rich. The parallel account in Luke tells us that he was powerful. He was a ruler, probably of a synagogue. Matthew tells us that he was young. To be young, healthy, wealthy, and rich and powerful. Doesn't get any better than that, does it? That's what the world tells us. Maybe even that's what we feel in our own hearts will lead to true happiness. Health, wealth, and power. If you have those things, then you can be happy. Now, what's unusual, if you understand the culture of Jesus' day, is that there were no multi-million dollar athletes in those days. Young 20-somethings who had million dollar salaries. There were no actors or actresses or music stars who who made millions of dollars when they were young. So the only way that this man could possibly have a a powerful position like he did and the wealth that he had at this age was by inheriting it. So that's, that's probably where the background of this question comes from. I don't think we would ever ask a question like this. It just it just sounds weird to us to ask a question like this. But it makes perfect sense knowing his circumstances. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's a, that's a good question, right? In fact, it's more than that. It's the most important question that anyone can possibly ever ask. There's the curious thing, though. If he had that, all the ingredients for human happiness, what's he doing here? Why is he on his knees in front of Jesus? If he's already happy, if he's got the key to happiness, why 
Why does he have to ask Jesus for anything? Well, I guess you could ask a similar question. Why are so many people in our own country, which is the most prosperous in the history of the world, why are so many people in our country, so many American citizens, so unhappy, so depressed, so longing for something else, something more? I found it interesting in the past couple of years. Why, why have the, some of the richest people in the world, the most powerful people in the world, the, the Jeff Bezoses of the world, the Elon Musks, the Richard Bransons, why have they t- taken their billions, spent billions of their own money to shoot rockets into space? Why, why do they do that? Are they not content with what they have here on earth? I think it's for the same reason that this young man was at Jesus' feet because he experienced a, a nagging in his heart. He knew he was lacking something, something that his money couldn't buy and something that his power couldn't grab for him. You know what that was? You know what that is that nags at every human heart? It's our immortality. It's our mortality. It's the fact that one day we're going to die. It's the fact that even though we try to deny it, even though we try to ignore it, there's no escaping the reality that each of us knows in our core that there's something more. There's something more than we can see with our eyes and feel with our hands. Something beyond our five senses. And that's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that everyone in the world has that feeling. Because in Ecclesiastes, the Lord says that He has put eternity into the hearts of men. Everyone knows there's something more. And that's what this man was after. He wanted to know how he could be sure that after he died, after his wealth and his power and his health were gone, that he would have something to look forward to. Now, we should commend this young man for a few things. Uh, First of all, unlike the Pharisees and unlike the teachers in the law, he's sincere. The Pharisees and the experts in the law, the only reason they ever came to Jesus to ask him a question was to try to trip him up and trap him. This man is sincere. He really wants an answer to this question, and he's got the right question. One of the frustrations that pastors sometimes have is that uh, Christians and non-Christians alike will come and ask questions that really have nothing to do with Scripture, nothing to do with eternity. Questions that, that deal with minor, relatively minor matters. But this man, he gets right to the core. He gets right to the heart of what religion is all about. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's sincere and he's asking the right question. A lot to commend here. And he he seems, by the question, to have an idea of how he gets it, right? What must I do? That's humans' natural religion. That we have to do something to inherit eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus and calls him good teacher. Again, you see a bit of that, that work righteousness in there. You know, he, he already had the wealth. He already had the, the youth. He already had the power. But he was coming to Jesus to ask him, what's the last thing? What's the, the cherry on top of my well-lived life that I need to do in order to earn eternal life? Now, Jesus wants nothing to do with this flattery, nothing to do with this comment. He throws it right back at him. Why do you call me good? There's no one that is good, only one, just God. It seems like kind of a strange answer from Jesus, right? Is he denying that he's God? No. But he is saying what the rest of the Bible says, that there is no one who is good. We were all born in sin from the time we were conceived. Paul says it categorically in Romans chapter 3, there's no one good, not even one. 
And that's related to why Jesus won't take this compliment. Because while this rich young ruler saw Jesus as a good teacher, he did not yet recognize or acknowledge him as God. And if you're going to call Jesus good, you must first confess him as the one true God, as the Son of God. And this man wasn't there yet. And so Jesus rejects his compliment, his flattery. There's something strange about this question, though, isn't there? What must I do to inherit? Do you do something to gain an inheritance? Now, I suppose you could try, and people have, and do try. What do they try? Well, they try to butter up. If they have a wealthy relative, they try to butter him up. You know, I'm going to make sure I call my, my wealthy uncle on his birthday every year. I'm going to make sure I always send him a Christmas letter. I'm always going to show up at the family functions and, and make sure I speak to him. Hopefully, he'll put my name in the will. People try to do things to get an inheritance, but in the end, an inheritance consists of two things. There are two things required for an inheritance. Someone else to freely decide to give you their stuff, and then that same person has to die. Now, again, this this young man should have recognized this, since that's probably how he got his wealth and his power, his position, that someone, presumably his father, had died. He hadn't earned those things at all. They had been given to him as a gift, and yet he's determined to know what he has to do. That's a question of the law. The law is what tells us what to do and what not to do. And so Jesus answers him with the law. He says, here's what you can do. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. There's plenty there to do, right? Luther said, in those commandments, there is enough to keep a person occupied their entire lives. Even if you had nothing to do other than these commandments, you would be busy your entire life. Although, apparently not for this guy. This guy says, teacher, I've kept all these things since I was young. Is that accurate? Do you think that's true? That he actually kept all of these things since he was young? What this young man suffered from is what far too many people and even far too many Christians today still suffer from. He's sincere, yes, but he's terribly uninformed. He's inexcusably ignorant. He doesn't understand what the law really is all about. Clearly, he's never read Luther's small catechism. Apparently, he wasn't there at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through where Jesus makes it clear the law is spiritual. The law of God doesn't just deal with things the laws of this world do, the the external things, things you do with your hands. The law, as we heard in Hebrews, deals with the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Everyone is guilty of sinning against the commandments that Jesus listed right there. We all are. None of us can stand before God and say, dare to say, all these I have kept since I was young. Hatred. Racism, prejudice, even, even seeing someone in need and not helping them, that's murder in the eyes of God. Even thinking about adultery is adultery in the eyes of God. False testimony isn't just something that's given in a courtroom. It's something that is, is easily shared at the supper table and spread on social media. Fraud? Well, it could be something as simple as forgetting to scan something at the self-checkout register at the grocery store or 
tweaking your tax return a little bit so you don't have to pay quite as much as the IRS says that you owe. Honoring your father and your mother also includes public health officials, even if we don't agree with their judgments or their mandates. The law doesn't give any hope. The law takes no prisoners. The law kills. That's what it was intended to do. That's why God gave us his law, to kill us. But Jesus' response here is fascinating, isn't it? He looks at the man and he loves him. This is what love looks like. When you're dealing with someone who is, is unaware or is ignoring their own sinfulness, who still thinks that there is a shred of goodness left in them, that is no time to say, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you. That is no time for the gospel. Jesus hits him again with the law. One thing you lack, sell everything and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And here Jesus had given him no wiggle room where he couldn't say, I've done this since I was young. He was a wealthy man. And Jesus was calling him to do the one thing that he could not do, would not do. Give away his wealth. What he had really exposed was that even though this young man may have seemed like a perfectly decent man to his neighbors and his friends, he would have been a son any mom would want, a church member any church would want. He had failed to keep the first and the greatest commandment, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. There's no room, wiggle room, when it comes to the law of God. The law takes no prisoners, not with this young man and not with us. Luther explains the first commandment this way. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Above all things. If we fear, love, or trust in anything other than God, that's idolatry. That means having an idol. And the really scary thing today, I think, is that idols aren't just things that you shape out of metal or wood and bow down and worship. They're not just found in temples. They lurk in our hearts. Most idols are invisible. No one can see them. What do you think the, the most prevalent idol is in our world today, in the Western world in 21st century America? Don't you think it would be happiness, the desire, the longing for happiness, that if you ask almost anyone, I maybe even ask you, what do you want for yourself and for your children? I want them to be Happiness is an idol. And idols require service. Idols require you to sacrifice to them. How do you know if there's an idol lurking in your heart? How do you know if happiness has become your idol, searching after happiness and and longing for it? Uh, It's been said that a good way to test yourself, test your heart, analyze it, see if there are any idols there, is, is... to test your level of anxiety. What makes you anxious? What makes you worried? What keeps you up at night? What are the things that are always on your mind that that prevent you from being content, from having the happiness that I think we all inherently long for? Well, if you're going to serve happiness, if happiness is your goal, there are a few various altars that you're going to be required to bow down at, worship at, make sacrifices at, and strangely enough, I think they're the same, the same altars that this rich young ruler was bowing down at, right? You have the, the, the altar of youth or health, right? 
You, you need to be healthy to be happy. If you're sick, who's, who's happy when they're sick? So we offer our sacrifices at that altar of health, of youth. No matter what it is, maybe it's wearing the mask, maybe it's getting a shot, maybe it's running dozens of miles a week, maybe it's spending long hours in the gym, maybe it's meticulously watching your diet. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because the, the altar, the idol of health holds out the promise, if you do this, you will live. And then what ends up happening it boomerangs on us, right? No matter how much we diet, no matter how much we exercise, no matter how many medications we take, we get sick and we eventually die. And you know who's to blame for that? It's not the idol of health, it is you. You didn't do enough dieting. You didn't do enough exercise. You didn't take the right medications at the right time. It's your fault when you get sick and you die. That's how idols always work. Wealth. Wealth is another key ingredient to having happiness in our world, right? So we bow down before the altar of wealth. We work more as Americans now than we ever have. 50, 60, 70 hours a week. We save, we invest, we, we do everything we can to come up with a nest egg that we can retire with. Wealth, the key to happiness. And yet what happens You realize whether you have very little or you have a lot, you realize you can never have enough. And no matter how many things you can buy, they never really make you happy. There's always something more to buy. It doesn't matter. You can fill up your garage. You can fill up your basement. You can fill up your attic. You can go buy a storage space for all your stuff. It's not going to make you happy. But again, who's to blame? Does, does wealth say, I'm sorry, it was a false lie, it was a mirage I was holding out to you that happiness can be found if you just worship me, if you bow down to me? No, it's you who are to blame. You didn't work enough, you didn't buy the right stuff, you didn't save enough, you didn't invest wisely enough. It's always your fault when you, the idol fails you. Power. That's another route to happiness, right? Another essential ingredient. You have to have some amount of power in your life. And remember, the devil always uses good things and turns them into idols. So let's just use an example of a very good thing. The power that maybe as a pastor or as parents, as grandparents, the power that we have to help our children, our families do good things that are healthy for them, wise things that are good for their eternal lives. We think we have this power to convince the people we know, you know, you need to be on church, in church on Sundays. You need to be reading your Bible on your own. You need to be receiving the sacrament. You need to be teaching your children the Bible. And we, we think we have that power and we think we can convince them and then we're aghast. We're shocked when they say, you know, I don't really need to do that. I don't think that God's Word is really a priority in my life. And they end up despising the very means of grace that we think are so important that we, with all of our power, want to convince them are important. And again, whose fault is it when you fail to convince a friend or a relative that the means of grace are truly vitally important for this life and for the next, and they reject it? Whose fault does it end up being? Does the God called power get down and say, I'm sorry, I I was wrong? Of course not. You didn't do it the right way. You weren't persuasive enough. You weren't powerful enough. You weren't savvy enough. It's always your fault. That's how idols always work. 
You serve them with all your might, and they always and only ever fail to hold up their end of the bargain. And when we end up serving them with our lives, we always end up just like this young man, empty, longing for something more, having this nagging idea that we don't have what we really need. That's what the law does to us. The law doesn't take prisoners, the law kills. Always, always, it kills us. It closes off any route that we may have to say, God, I am good before you. Jesus still loved this man. He still wanted to give him what he was lacking. And so he told him, you've got to get rid of all your stuff. Your wealth is what is getting between you and God. Bowing down before wealth is preventing you from worshiping God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Get rid of it. Give it to the poor. Take your eyes off the things of this world, the treasures of this world that will just rot and decay anyway, and put, set your heart on the things above, the treasures in heaven which will never rot or decay or pass away. Now, the young man, we're told, went away sad. Why? Well, because he was rich and he wasn't willing to part with that idol. He wasn't willing to get rid of his wealth. How do you think the story ends? That's all we hear is that he went away sad. Did he come to his senses? Maybe did he cheer up on the way home and give away all of his stuff and then come back and follow Jesus? Did he, did he get rid of his stuff and give it to the poor? We don't know how the story ends. There is some speculation out there because this story occurs in all three of the Synoptic Gospels that this man was actually Mark, the author of this Gospel. And that when we see him later, later on in the Garden of Eden, you know, uh, possibly he's the, the man who, who the, the guards try to, try to capture and they pull his robe off of him and he runs naked. The idea is that all, he, get, he did give away everything and all he had left was that one robe. And that's why he fled naked. I don't know. I don't think there's enough evidence to say that this is actually Mark. But it's a good thing because it it begs us, it forces us to consider ourselves, to examine our own hearts, to step into his shoes and ask the question, if Jesus asked you to give up something that was precious to you, maybe it is your wealth. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a, an appointment on your calendar. Maybe all the appointments, the ones that make you too busy to sit down and read your Bibles. Whatever it is, if God asks you to give that up, would you do it or would you walk away sad like that man? Would it do any good, even if you did? If this man gave away all of his possessions, did that ensure that he would have eternal life? Of course not. Of course not. That's the law. The law can say, this is how you can earn eternal life, but it can't give it because we can't do it. So what is the gospel here? There's an awful lot of law in this lesson. Where is the gospel? It's easy to miss. It's just two little words. Follow me. This man missed it. This man was so keyed into the law of what he must do that he missed the gospel. Follow me. Now Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It's not too long before he will be betrayed and arrested. And Jesus is saying, follow me there. Follow me to the cross. Follow me to the empty tomb. Follow me as I ascend into heaven where I rule everything at my Father's right hand. Follow me to see that eternal life is not something you can earn, but only a gift that can be given, freely given to you. 
We can't earn it. But Jesus could and Jesus did. That's what he was doing. That's what he was on his way to Jerusalem to do by his suffering and his death to earn us eternal life. So let's just be very clear about our takeaway from this lesson. It's not that wealth is evil. And it's not that rich people can't go to heaven. It's that no one, rich, poor, in between, can earn their way into heaven. No one can. That's what Jesus was illustrating with his picture of trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. It's not hard. It's impossible. And that's what had the disciples so worried. Jesus said, it's impossible for someone who is clinging on to their wealth as their God to enter eternal life. And they said, oh boy, if a, a, a powerful, young, rich man like this guy, who seems to have it all going for him, who seems to be blessed by God, if he can't get into heaven, who can? Jesus says no one can under their own power. It's impossible. But not with God. It's not impossible with God. The inheritance that we could never earn is God's pleasure to give to us for free for Jesus' sake. It's just sad, isn't it, how close this young man was to eternal life? I mean, not only was it standing right in front of him in the the form of Jesus, but he got it. It's an inheritance. It's a gift. It's not something you earn. And two things have to happen for you to get that gift. Someone else has to decide to write your name in their will and freely give you their stuff, and then that person has to die. That's what Jesus did. He he wrote your name in his will before the creation of the world, and he sealed it, he sealed you as his heir at that baptismal fund. He gives you a down payment of the inheritance that's waiting for you in heaven every time you feast here on his body and blood. He gives you week after week, day after day, the confession and absolution, which allow you to examine your heart for idols and get rid of them. He makes these wonderful promises in his word, promises that he will keep unlike all those false gods out there. Don't think and don't really ask this question in your own life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Get rid of the doing part. Just ask, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow me. Follow me to my cross where I paid for it. Follow me through the empty tomb where I I kicked in the teeth of death and defeated him once and for all. Follow me and you will have eternal life. And if anything gets in the way, anything at all, a relative, your money, your job, your schedule, anything that gets in the way, you've got to get rid of it. Because no idol is worth serving, not compared to Jesus, who gave up everything to give us eternal life. Amen.